0: Jared's downloading them. Um, let's, let's start with a prayer and then then I'll um, start on this other stuff. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself to us, particularly this morning in the Mass. Um, how extraordinary that we carry your divine life within us um, and become a part of your kingdom. The um, kingdom come, thy will be done here as it is in heaven. Let it be here with us that it is in your kingdom. Make you present in all that we do. I ask a special grace for all of this week, all of us this week, that we make time to go to deserted places, wherever they would be. Deserted, without comforts of home, that we separate ourselves um, to leave all this stuff um, um, to talk with you in um, the Father and the Spirit um, and so grow closer to you and make you more present in our lives. Amen. Amen. Um, okay, so the Divine Comedy is will be available um, um in some ways what I started to say a second ago, in some ways it's sad what schools are doing with this stuff. That you guys are doing this is actually sort of amazing. I wish more it could, it could be given to more people because in schools today um, people don't read the whole tradition so they don't do the Iliad and the Odyssey and go on to Virgil and then to the Commedia. UD does, but in that sense it's one of the most remarkable programs I think in the country. But the, the point I want to make here is that Virgil is Dante's guide for two-thirds of his trip to heaven. He's a pagan. Um, and it's important to see that because in, and it's it fits so well with what the Pope, John Paul, one of his encyclicals is Fide Ratio, Faith and Reason, that one of the efforts that you would hope Catholics would make today and that would be a part of their faith was pulling faith and reason together. It doesn't happen. The pagans did because they didn't have... Christ to fall back on to. So I, I hope you all see now or have begun to have some sense that there's this amazing richness to nature, that there's so much going on that makes God present, visible in nature, that we've lost sight of. Virgil's Dante's guide. Um, and it's impossible really to appreciate what Virgil does for Dante without seeing what Virgil does in the Aeneid, which is what we're starting, and it's impossible to appreciate that if you've not read Iliad and The Odyssey, because both of them are assimilated into this work. So people who who go on to read Virgil, who've not read Homer, will they will miss a million things. I mean, they'll be reading a text thinking they're understanding it, and they won't, because what part of the meaning of Virgil's text is that he's transforming everything that Homer did. So the whole Homeric world gets carried forward and subtly changed. It's contained in the Aeneid, and people who have not read them won't see them. So this whole question of poetry teaching us to see things that that are present but not always visible. So Virgil's a master at that. So one of the things we'll see is that uh, the whole Homeric world gets carried forward. So what I wanted to do today is just pull it all together um, and, and then touch on some of, some of the more important things on Virgil, and then we'll start the need next week. And um, for those of you who haven't read, it gives you a chance to, um, to read. So our schedule will be three books a week, so next week we'll do books one through three, and then we'll stay through that for four weeks, and then after that four-week period we start the Divine Comedy, which interestingly will take us into Lent, um, which is in some ways what the Divine Comedy, the first two-thirds of it, is about. It's about learning to see our sins and answering them. So, so that's what we're going that's what we're going to be doing. So I hope you're not. Going to be too disappointed this morning. We're not going to.
1: I love big it. pictures because so I get lost in the details. <laughs> so I like this.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Books one, two, and three.
0: Mm-hmm. We, we, we did six books because there were 24 in Homer's World. We'll, there's 12 books to Virgil, so we'll do three books each week for four weeks, and, and that'll do it. Okay. Um, do you all have a copy of? T.S. Eliot's the, the Journey of the Magi. <coughs> Sorry. Um, I thought I would read two poems today um, because I have to squeeze them in. I wanted to read Journey to Magi. I didn't read it on Monday, but I'll pick it up this coming Monday. Um, and then uh, next Friday f- for our time. We will do um, um, Richard Wilbur's Love Calls Us to Things of the World. We'll read that poem next week. But I thought it would be good to read The Journey of the Magi because we're in um, Epiphany. And this is T.S. Eliot, who, who I think is probably the greatest poet of the 20th century. And when we do the Divine Comedy, mm, I'm seriously thinking about reading. All of the four quartets, which probably won't mean anything to those of you who don't read poetry, but I, th- I think it's the most amazing poem of the, tw- certainly one of the most amazing poems of the 20th century. It may force you out of the class listening to this, but I'm going to risk reading it anyway. But so T.S. Eliot's a, a major, major poet. Um, he wrote. Um, he went. He underwent a conversion in the middle of his life, and it turned the whole intellectual world on its on its head because everybody looked at him as the poet of modernity and then he converted and he writes this poem called Ash Wednesday Let me even read that just to and the whole academic world um, turned on him because it was clear that he had become religious Um, and Journey of the Magi is one of the poems he writes towards the end of his life so I'm going to read that. You'll see I don't need to say anything about it. The it, sense of it is pretty clear. I also want to read Aeneas of Washington by Alan Tate. And Alan Tate's going to play a major role in our, in our time today because I think Alan Tate is one of the best critics, if not the best literary critic, of the 20th century. And some of the things that he did for literature. Um, are so important, and he also converted. He became Catholic late in his life, and um, you'll see from his poetry, I mean, from his criticisms, the, the, the sensibility that's behind his thinking, and um, and how important Dante was for him. Anyway, I've got some notes that I want to offer you this morning because they they really do further the work that we've been doing on the imagination and prophecy, what's going on in literature. Because you know, most people read literature and think, or they don't read literature because it's fanciful stuff and who cares, but these men, make a, they see clearly that there's so much more going on in literature than most people see. Um, he wrote this poem, in Aeneas at Washington, and I want to read it now, and then I'm going to read it again in our last class. Because by then, you'll have a much greater sense of Aeneas and why Tate would have, written this poem. Uh, you, the, the poem's written from the point of view of the person speaking. You can say that's a, the poet or a persona. You can say it's Alan Tate himself. He's southerner. He belonged to the agrarian movement. I don't know if you are aware of the southern agrarian movement. It was a group of men who gathered at Vanderbilt who were in revolt against the um, the northern encroachment. But you remember the Scopestruths Skril's Skril's trial. Trial, yes. mm-hmm. and the, the way the federal government sort of imposed its will on the South after the Civil War, the Southern critics and Southern artists became very aware of that Flannery O'Connor, Tate, figures like that, they said that one of the things that distinguished the South from the North is that after their defeat in the Civil War they became aware of their sin um, in a way that the North hasn't so the north carries this sort of hubris it's like it's without sin and it has this power and the south became very self-conscious um, this group of men formed called the agrarians, the fugitives the opening lines of the Aeneid, this fugitive escaping the past, they identified with Aeneas because their 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 Troy was being destroyed and they had to Find a new way of standing in the world because their traditional beliefs had been overthrown, particularly after the Scopes Trial, um, where educators came in and told them how to how to educate and what they should be offering their education, and um, that fight still goes on. I mean, everybody knows it. So, anyway, he wrote this poem. It, it's a it's a poem about Aeneas at Washington. It's it's really a, a a poem about a poet's awareness that the America that he founded has been destroyed by the many. Remember the Trojans were sort of an elite king group and the Trojans are an emerging democracy, it's his image of the many coming in and destroying Troy. So he he looks wistfully, painfully at um, Washington with some sense that the government no longer listens, it doesn't serve people anymore. That the city that they once knew, the government that we created, if you go back and read our founding documents, the Declaration, the Constitution, you know, the Federalist Papers, all those, and look at the government today, it's as if it's been taken over and we've lost the sense of what we once were. So, this pointedly looks at the need. So, I, this is a contemporary and it's the way, it, you I, I think you're seeing that more and more, it's the way poets work, that they carry this past forward. It, it is so much a part of our Catholic faith that we carry Christ, our traditions, that we carry them forward. They present special burdens to us. We can't just go back and live them um, blindly. They have to be recreated. So the burden isn't that we just carry it forward and rigidly adhere to it part of the nature of the tradition is it has to be carried forward and recreated and that's what the poets are doing So, I want to read this this poem now and then do it again in our last week because by that time you'll have some sense of who Aeneas is more deeply and then understand why Tate wrote this poem and what it says about um, ourselves today so, um, um, T.S. Eliot and Tate. T.S. Eliot's Journey of the Magi. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for the journey, and such a long journey, the ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. Notice how he takes the, what to us is a. We, this is so much part of what we're doing. Something that was of the past, the journey of the Magi, and how much his language and the events bring it into the present. So it's almost like we become a part of that past now. That it's a part of. It. That's the whole point of the poem, in some sense, that that past be kept alive now. The very dead of winter, and the camels, galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes. The terraces and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women. And the night fires going out and the lack of shelters. And the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly. And the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Then at dawn we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and watermill beating the darkness and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door, dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information, so we continued, arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All of this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down, this set down, this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence, and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation. With an alien people clutching their guns, I should be glad of another death." Mm. (laughs) Neoptolemus, remember, is or you'll see it if you didn't get it, uh, we'll get it in the Aeneid, you'll see um, is Achilles' son, a violent man, just so different from the figure of Achilles that we have after Homer. The Atreidae are the two sons of Atreus, Menelaus and Agamemnon, remember that's the family name, Um, Hecuba is Priam's wife, and if you remember from the Iliad, um, they had hundreds of children, it was a dynastic, it was a dynastic world, the few, the wealthy. The knees of Washington, Alan Tate. I myself saw furious with blood Neoptolemus, at his side the black Atridae, Hecuba and the hundred daughters. Priam cut down, his filth drenching the holy fires. Priam cut down, his filth drenching the holy fires. In that extremity I bore me well, a true gentleman, valorous in arms, disinterested and honorable. Then fled. It was a time when civilization, run by the few, fell to the many and crashed to the shout of men, the clang of arms. Cold victuals I seized. I hoisted up the old man, my father, upon my back in the smoke made by sea for a new world, saving little, a mind imperishable if time is, a love of past things tenuous as the hesitation of receding love. To the reduction of uncited literals we brought chiefly the vigor of prophecy, our hunger breeding calculation and fixed triumphs. I saw the thirsty dove in the glowing fields of Troy, hemp ripening and tawny corn, the thickening blue grass, all lying rich forever in the green sun. I see all things apart, the towers that men contrived. I too contrived long, long ago. Now I demand little. The singular passion abides its object and consumes desire in the circling shadow of its appetite. There was a time when the young eyes were slow, their flames steady beyond the first lean fire. I stood in the rain, far from home at nightfall, by the Potomac. The great dome lit the water. The city my blood had built, I knew no more, while the screech owl whistled his new delight, consecutively dark. Stuck in the wet mire, four thousand leagues from the ninth buried city, I thought of Troy. what we had built her for. Hmm. What a sense of loss. Sorry, could, go you, could you say that little paragraph, the second one, the, to the reduction of, I don't understand some of the words. Can you uh, to the, that? It's a difficult, it, it's interesting because he's narrating this experience of being at, at um, Washington you know, there at the dome. Um, and there's this interruption like it's a reflection, but a comment what's happened. I don't want to go into the poem much, but to so the reduction of uncity literals. Uncity literals is shorelines. It's a shore generally between the high and low tide marks where, where people build. I think probably comfortable bungalows or you know but this is uncity literal to the reduction of uncity literal we bought chiefly the vigor of prophecy to this new world our hunger breeding calculation and fixed triumphs um... what's replaced the vision that we once had of America I think is breeding calculation and fixed triumphs that we've got this calculating mentality and we've lost the innocence that we once had when we plot the revolution and founded our government and you know mm-hmm. Okay. Um no love calls to the thing of the world. See? No Love causes to the Things of the World. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna do it next week, Doc. I wanna I'll read um the journey to Monday class. Okay, I'm gonna um I hope I hope this goes alright. Um What I'd like to do is put everything together but in a way that points to um, the Aeneid. Um, um, C.S. Lewis and um, T.S. Eliot both, uh, particularly Eliot, looked at the Aeneid as the sign that European civilization had reached its maturity that Homer is a great poet, but that it isn't until Virgil that we really grow into our maturity because it's only then the, a tradition is formed. One of the reasons for saying that is because Homer had nobody behind him, virtually. He had an oral tradition, but there's nothing form, and we don't have any major poets to look back to. Virgil had Homer, and what he did with Homer is amazing, and um, and their argument, and it's it's one I agree with. I think you'll see the the, the, the reason for it as we move through the Aeneid is that um, when you, I admire Achilles tremendously, maybe to a fault, and I admire Odysseus. They're both going to be trashed in this work. Virgil's gonna, I mean he's gonna rewrite it, it's gonna be interesting to hear your own response to this, but he, he's gonna, he looks at them as scoundrel scumbags. You know, <laughs> just, they're, 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 you know, these are the two men that tower over the Greek world and they're not going to be presented that way. And Aeneas is going to be a very different kind of hero, very, very different. He has both of those men in him, but he brings something that radically changes it, and I think points towards Catholicism. So, um, everything we do today is going to, I mean, that we've done is going to be important for how we go forward. So I want to take a few minutes and cover some of the more important things that we've done in the what have we been together for now? A couple months? Couple months? Um, pull it all together before we go on. So, um, Behind all of this is this question of what Rome is. So I want to just put that out there baldly. The Aeneid is about the founding of Rome. Who cares? What's, what's Rome? It's a city. Paris, New York, I mean, in what sense does it, um, pick Mecca, pick a, you know, Tokyo, pick out a city. Who cares? Um, um, Virgil thought enough of it because he was Roman. Um, I'll turn the board and put the timeline on in a second, but there's something going on in Rome that makes it very different from any other city in the world. That's going to be the claim. That's at the heart of our faith, so... Insofar as this class has been about um, looking at literature to find how our strength can be, our faith can be strengthened by reading it, that we're given something here to make more sense of our faith, this speaks directly to it because this is about the founding of Rome and that's the center of our faith. So what is Rome? Um, why, Why is it so important? As we move through the book, all sorts of things are going to happen that set Rome against other cities. I'll come to that in a minute. And each each time we have to ask ourselves, what's going on with these cities um, that that makes them just ordinary cities, but that helps us understand something about Rome? That'll be the overriding concern for the next four weeks. I want to go back now and pick up this notion of prophecy. When we first met, I made the claim that um, certain works of literature, special works of literature, had a prophetic quality to them and that if we learned to see it, we would, we would find something out about our own faith. Um, when I made that claim, I said that I thought most people would find that preposterous because most people don't look at literature as being prophetic, particularly in the modern world. I made several claims, and I want to just um, recall them for a second. The first claim that I made was that literature is prophetic in a special sense. Remember, in that timeline I I gave you here, if you'll you'll pull that out, remember, in prophecy as we understand it, generally, um, God speaks directly to men to reveal something to them that's important for their salvation. That's St. Thomas. If human reason were sufficient to get us to heaven, we wouldn't need prophecy. God speaks to us in order to help us see things that we can't see without him. So we have the whole prophetic tradition that we have in Scripture, in the Old Testament. That prophetic tradition stops with Christ. Except it's supposed to continue forward with us, because as you know, we, as Catholics, we're supposed to see ourselves as Prophets, priests, and kings. So there's supposed to be a prophetic element in all of us, some way. I mean, that's our faith. But that prophetic tradition condition- continues. I made the argument, I if you go back to that sheet, that there's a prophetic quality of the literature seen in another way, and I was making the claim that there's a, pro- a prophetic element on this side of prophecy, on the natural side. And very often it, it grows out of. Painful experiences. All epics remember about wars, these great struggles that the poets write about, in order to reveal something coming out of those great struggles. That at the center of those pains, something is revealed. And we've seen what they are in the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I made the argument that 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 goes through Homer down to Virgil and that one of the most important things to see was the way that the, the literary um, prophetic qualities lined up with the actual biblical prophetic qualities because all of them on the, on the prophetic side point towards the coming of the new, the promised land and the Messiah and we know that everybody gets those things wrong that, the, that everybody in the Jewish tradition kept thinking the promised land would be a city, concrete, mortar, place they come into the, the promised land. When the disciples come, or when Christ comes, all the disciples think that he's the Messiah who's who's going to answer all the earthly ills and bring to fulfillment this belief that a city will emerge with a new king, a new power, and all their problems will be solved. And you remember those passages in the Bible where they assume that and it's quite clear they've gotten wrong. So there's the sense that there is a promised land, there is a Messiah, but it's it's been imperfectly understood because the ultimate kingdom, as we know from Revelation and, and if we continue in the reading of the Bible, is of another kingdom, another world. It's heavens, we know that this whole thing of Gnosos, of going home, it's taken to a new level with Christianity, that our ultimate home is with God. So Homer picked up something intuitive with this sense of how important it is to go home. He had some sense of the ultimate importance of that. It it finally becomes clarified with Christianity. Um, So there's a a promised land and a Messiah, but both of them make clear that the ultimate ultimate origins, the, the end of all of our strivings is the new Jerusalem in heaven. And we saw that in the, in the Homeric poems, I, I raised this, this problem, this question, that how many people in the poems themselves actually saw a founding was taking place? You know, how, may, how many of the people, at, at one, of the, one of Agamemnon's followers, one of the soldiers, I think it's Diomedes, says, the one person who will be singled out at the end of this when they finally conquer Troy, be Agamemnon. How many of the soldiers saw what Achilles done, what he did, what he accomplished? How many of them really understood what was going on? You know, all the reversals that take place that we talked about. How many on the battlefield really understood that? I'd say none of them. So, is the real founding, as it will be here, I mean, the same question in Virgil, this Rome, you're going to see when we get to it, is, are we to understand Rome as this, this place of Brick and mortar of the you know concrete buildings, or is there something more? All the epics have made it clear that if a refounding takes place, it's in the imagination, in those in those readers who understand what's going on, whether that that refounding takes place here, in the way that we see, and whether we live that in our own lives. So, the the theme of a refounding which is the theme of the epic isn't always about the founding of a new city in terms of building and mortar and there is a geographic place, there is a real place, Rome is a real place but in both the prophetic tradition and the literary tradition there's this sense that there's something more that the prophets see and that the poets see. So prophecy, as I've been presenting it, is a special kind of prophecy on this side the, the temporal side, the earthly side of religious prophecy as we always think about it. That was one of the claims. Um, the second was that nearly all great literature and certainly many of the great works of ancient literature offer us foreshadowings of Christ. We've been seeing that in the small lyric poems I've been reading, The Wind Hover, Kingfisher's Catch Fire, Supernatural Love, um, joyous poem about words, the special power that words have, um, the journey of the Magi, and we can go on, but I think particular, oh, the Herbert poems on love and death, all of those give us intimations that Christ is present in nature at work. So in Hopkins' The windhover remember, that was an image of the, the crucifixion and the no wonder of it um, fall... Um, no wonder of it fall down the fall. sillion. The description of the fire going out and the farmer plowing the, the fine sillion were images in a, in a fire and in a farmer's turning over the earth that the crucifixion the dying and coming to life again was present in nature. So, in, in all of poetry, there is the sense of a logos, but God is present in his creation. How could it not be he made it? The modern world has lost sense of that, but that was one of the things we've got it. And we saw it in spades in, in the two epics, because remember that one of the things they both have in common, and that they're going to have in common with Virgil, is the sense of the parousia. That's a church term. It's, it's, it belongs to our faith. The second coming of Christ. So this, this theme of the return of the king, he will come this time in majesty and glory, calling judgment, that Christ will return. That's, our, that's out of catechism. Achilles comes back into the war. Nobody can defeat him. Nobody can touch him. All the images are of this extraordinary effulgent light coming out of him. And it's and it's then that he comes out of the past and into the present. The, the, the Odyssey. The return of the king. He comes home, disguises himself, and finally reveals himself, and there is this reckoning, you know, with everybody. Virgil. Aeneas is gonna go. This is gonna be even stranger. Virgil's Trojan. When he goes to Italy, he's going to learn that he's actually going back to the place that was founded by his forefathers. This is why T.S. Eliot said, in, in my beginning is my end. In my end is my beginning. We always go back to where we started from and see the place for the first time. So there's the sense of returning to origins. The king will come back um, and um, so they all had these amazing intuitions of the parousia. What we understand as the parousia, they are the subject of each of the... How can that be, for, for both of Homer's poems, as a poet? Um, and in addition to those, remember, we saw that there is this logos, there's this, there's this whole order of nature that's called into play when the hero returns. Remember when Achilles comes back into the war, all of the gods go into battle, that's Psychomachia. And the Achaean gods defeat all the Trojan gods, Athena, Hera. Um, and I, it seems to me, if I'm understanding that correctly, I think, it's, I think that's what Homer's seeing. What he's showing is um, the... Um, what's the right word? Uh, uh, mastery, the mastery the supremacy of the superiority of the intellect the cognitive over the appetitive over the passions that in nature god's light is present that it's somehow at work nature is not, in the the modern scientific mind nature's been denuded it's emptied it's just quantity in the in the uh, pre-christian mind nature the gods were there i mean that's why we said one the um, the Phaeacian ship took Odysseus home and dropped him off and returned and it was turned into a mountain. Do you all remember that? Because the, the, what was going on was the Phaeacians had this hubris that they could go over the sea with mastery like thoughts. Remember we did that? What's the danger of that? Mastering nature. Well, the gods are in nature. If, if man ever reaches a point of thinking he can master nature, it's like mastering God. That's God's home. That's what he made. That's why we have the Jurassic Park series, or the hubris of the modern mind, where you think you can master nature, and then all these, you know, if you've seen the Jurassic Park, it's the same thing. So there's this um, great richness of meaning, of intelligibility, that God's light is, is somehow were um, revealed there. And we saw it in Odysseus as a journey home, that he had to learn these archetypes, these things in nature, the feminine, the underlying causes of things, because if he was going to be, a, if he was going to return home and bring order to his family, if he was going to be a good ruler, he would have to know the nature of things. How else could he rule if he didn't? So, um, all this literature, has um, offered us these strange foreshadowings, these intimations of Christ. The third claim I made was that along with Genesis and Exodus that the Iliad and Odyssey um, should be seen as the founding works of Western civilization. They are the poetic works that most fully show us ourselves as humans. They're not the, f- the degraded, deformed, misfigured human after the Reformation. Because we lose it all after the Reformation and the modern world. Um, Flannery O'Connor's image in a in a story called um, "The Heart of the Park" is a shrunken pygmy, that the mo- an ape. Are des- we are descendants of the apes. You know that we we have lost this sense of this extraordinary dignity that God gave us um, in our nature. Um, so these are the founding works of Western civilization. They they are the ones that most fully show us ourselves because they're the ones that show us related to a transcendent divine order. They're more fully rep- they show so much more of us in that sense. Um, and remember that, that, that um their their founding works in a number of reasons, one of which is that the theme is about refounding that each of the, t- the two Homeric works show that there are these great struggles going on. Um, the, the men are caught up in these disorders, they don't see themselves very well at all, and are undergoing this great struggle, and then suddenly something happens with one individual. He has to carry this burden that helps make it possible to come to a new identity, to come out of this disorder um, and be refounded. So remember, the great disorder in Iliad was there's this disordered sense of kleos of man's honor, because in the Iliad we see that um, most men um, identify the the worth of a human being in terms of his booty. Um, and it's only Achilles who steps outside of that. Remember in the in the ninth book when he says when Agamemnon brings the embassy to bribe him back, and he, he offers him cities and women and tons of wealth, all of that. I mean, what man would turn down cities? You know, just and Achilles says um, such um, such things. I need not. Um, I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. But stepping outside of that honor code has, and detaching himself from it, he's learned to see things in a new way. And this flawed sense of home in the family. Remember Pylos and Sparta, the way they lined up with um, Ithaca in the beginning, there were these disorders. Nestor could do nothing but talk about his war exploits he lived in the past. His wife almost doesn't exist in that I Remember my reading of it. She has, she's described once, the whole thing's taken up by Nestor and his constant talking about the great deeds performed in the past, which I know a lot of men do. Um, Menelaus and Helen were caught up in their wounds, the adultery. You know, she takes drugs, she takes for that, that, that forgetful, that heart's ease or whatever it was called. And Ithaca is torn apart, so the, open, the homes that open the odyssey are all in disorder. They're quiet. We have to say that Nestor's got a good marriage, so does Menelaus, but it isn't fully what man and woman is capable of, and so Odysseus goes through all of these struggles to deal with these archetypes and come home, and, and remember, as here, with Achilles bringing it into the present, going, getting out of this past disorder, there's that moment when um, Odysseus and Penelope are making love, and Athena stops time. So we've come out of that old world into this new, and, and we've learned to see that there's a new, there, are new, there are possibilities for a man and a woman to be in a marriage that's, um, that we don't find in these other relationships. So in both poems, we're, we're shown that there's this extraordinary dignity, that there are these sexual disorders that are behind both works. The, the problem at the center of this war that never gets looked at is that Paris took Helen and, she left her husband and the Greeks are there to, so one of the, for us, one of the consequences of a fall are the sexual disorders that we face as men and women. We have to bear these burdens. That the unity we once had is broken. But there's some sense here of recovering it. So, both works are so um, profound in uncovering these disorders in us as humans, and both of them offer these um, amazing examples of the great gifts that humans do have and what they're capable of achieving. So when we come out of this home world, we left, we're left with this Achilles standing above Troy. We know Troy is going to be destroyed. We don't see it. but We know how great he is. Nobody can defeat him. And uh, Odysseus, returning home to be reunited with his wife. So over this Homeric world are these two great individuals. Images of heroic possibilities in in us as humans. Well, pointing, looking ahead, what we'll discover when we get into Virgil's world is that's all going to be trashed. Because now what we're going to get is we're going to get the actual description of. Troy's destruction, we never get that in Homer's world. When Aeneas, when the book opens, he's going to end up at Carthage, and he's going to tell the story to Dido court, and we'll get the actual description of Troy. So, for the first time since Homer, we'll get a, a story of the Trojan War, but we get it from, this, from the perspective of the conquered, or the oppressed, the ones who lost. So we're going to get a very different reading now of this whole Homeric world. It's um, all going to be radically changed. Um, so that is just... Um, I, think, I think those are the... Oh, oh the, and the, the, fourth, the fourth claim I made. Um, that language is more important than we sometimes admit. And that the analogies between poetry and the word were more than superficial or artificial. Poetry wasn't simply a fanciful or flowery way of rendering the world. In fact, it offered a special kind of wisdom that no other kind can offer us. And it does this through language. And there are these constant analogies between the language of the poet and the word, the logos, what language can reveal. It's been one of the truths that I've been... Pressing. Remember that um, um language offers an image of reality in alioessa. Is that spelling right? Alio. In alio essa. In alioessa, in another mode that we get reality in another mode. It's like, a, remember I gave the example of pictures on a fridge that Suzanne and I think most women have pictures of their family everywhere and why do they put them on the fridge? I mean they're around always and because it is, it's, it's an image of reality. It's there, present, in another mode. So language can render reality to us, it can reveal it to us Um, and I'm going to add to this prophetic sense in a second in what I read from Tate, but right now just remember that we talked about the importance of language all along Um, it was a major theme of the Odyssey because remember when the implication becomes clear that the fools don't get home they miss their homecoming And, and Homer's description of the fools was napios Fools, the Greek Napios, fools, childlike. They can't read. And we have instances of that everywhere. The Cyclops, remember Polyphemus, when he's blinded, he screams out, and when all of his friends come running to help and say, Who's hurting you? And he goes, Nobody's hurting me, but nobody's hurting me by force or treachery. And he has no sense of irony. Because remember that Odysseus called himself a nobody. <coughs> and I talked about the punning on the word nobody. Cyclops is one-dimensional. He does not see analogies. The whole, the the great accomplishment of literature, what it does is it helps us to see a connection between a, a close point and something far. Through something near, concrete, occurring right in front of us, something else is taking place. So literature is a vision of distances. It's prophetic in that sense. The Cyclops could only see literally what was in front of him. Nobody's hurting me. So he had a literal understanding of language. Poetry enlarges that, deepens it. Through it, we see distances, multiple levels. Um, We saw that in lots of ways. Remember, Calypso means concealed. It's from what, what we get, the apocalypse. Unconcealing, the revelation that she keeps Odysseus concealed. And to the extent that she does that, she prevents his homecoming. He won't get home if she keeps him. And his kleos, the importance for every man to step out, to come out of that pack. Um, The danger that the woman presented to him is that he can enter into that feminine loveliness, the comfort she offers him, and not come home. So there were all those puns on Calypso, and even the word Odysseus meant um, displeasing or... Um, Displeasure. Hmm? Displeasure? Or distasteful. What? No, distasteful. was distasteful. distasteful. Because wherever he goes, he brings pain. Remember I said he's an image of something normative. Wherever he goes, he's going to trouble people because he, he, he makes... He makes it aware by his presence that there's something more going on. What did Christ do? Make everybody at home? Uh, leaves us shaking a lot. So, the, the intimations I mean, what the pagan world gave us is just sort of amazing to me. But anyway, so the last thing was how important language it is that we not take it for granted that. We have to take pains in how we use it because it is the means by which we see and learn to feel more deeply, particularly in poetry. So those were my those were my um, claims. Um, I want to read something from Alan Tate. Um, <laughs> sorry, but. <laughs> Um, before I do, I still i to take. I forget, Doctor. Am carrying forward inspiration? Just for my carrying forward. Or the other In the next five minutes. Can I help with something? No, I'm Okay. Would you repeat the quote? of uh, T.S. Eliot about returning to our beginnings, I love that, and I think. Yeah. He, he, no, I, because I, I, I don't know that I have it, but it's, um, in the four quartets, he said, "In our, in our end is our beginning, and our beginning is our end." Um, it's the place from which, it's the place we start from. I can't remember. Yes, and, and then you return and then, and return, return to and it and see it the first for the first time. I'll I'll get it for you. I'll re- I'll read it. Because yeah, you've asked. Because it's it's The Four Quartets is one of the most extraordinary poems of the I hope you'll love them. You may get tired of me with reading these poems, but it's he everything he did, he he was it made it was made possible for him to do be because of Dante. All of this is gonna come home, except the beginning of it is here, because Aeneid, who's Trojan, is going to Italy. That's a foreign place, and he's actually gonna be finding that he's going back to the place that was the origins of his, of his founders. So buried in the Aeneid is this mysterious sense of returning to origins that we don't see. And by the way, it's gonna be one of the great themes of Dante because as Dante gets closer to home, he's going back he's gonna he's gonna see Adam. He's gonna go he's gonna he's gonna to come to Gemini, which was the place of his birth. So there's there's the sense of going back to the creator who made us to go home. In our end is our beginnings, in our beginnings is our ends. We learn to see return to where we were and learn to see the thing for the first time, something like that, but I'll get it. I wanted to read a couple of passages from Alan Tate um, because they bear so directly on what's going on with Virgil and what we've been looking at at home Homer and is going to bear very directly on what we do with Dante. Tate believed that one of the dangers, C.S. Lewis, Eliot, all of these men believe that one of the dangers of the modern world is that, we've, that all of the idealistic philosophies, since Descartes and Kant and all the others, and the scientific mind, have pushed us into our heads, and insofar as they have, we live in abstractions, in ideas. We live too much in ideas and not in our senses. If you knew anything about St. Thomas, or poets, St. Thomas, you know we can't have any knowledge that doesn't come to us through our senses because we're corporeal creatures. We're not angelic. So the whole push towards, uh, of the modern world is towards a kind of angelism, to live in ideas in our heads. Tate is responding to that and he, it, it gives him a principle by, by which to gauge poets, to see what poets are doing. Whether they really locate us in reality, or whether they help reinforce this sense of being in our intellects too much. And he says this of what he's going to call the symbolic imagination. Symbolic imagination. Rest heavily on analogies. To uh, to, to repeat what I said a few minutes ago, it's learning to see far distances and near things. That's another way of saying that we learn to see the things in our senses. Like Hopkins wind hover. Here's this bird. Many, most people would look at a bird and see a bird and walk on. Or they might just say, God, what a beautiful sight. How many of them will see Christ in it? To learn to see in the thing right in front of us something in the distance. So the poets are prophets. are prophets in the sense they are seers of distances they show us the fullness of this thing in front of us by relating it to a farther point. The whole Homeric world does that, right? Everything that takes place on the literal level involves the gods. They're always interacting with them. This divine level is penetrated constantly. You can't separate the two. It's one of the values of Homer. This is Tate. To bring together various meanings at a single moment of action is to exercise what I shall speak of here as the symbolic imagination, but the line of action must be unmistakable. We must never be in doubt about what is happening, for at a given stage of his progress, the hero does one simple thing and one only. If it's not kept simple, we'll lose the connection of what's going on at this other level. If you think about the Iliad, it's very clear in the plot. We know exactly what's happening with Achilles and the other men always. And it makes it possible for Homer to be firm about what's happening with the (coughs) gods. If it get cloudy on the literal level, we'll lose contact with the divine level, the, the farther level. The symbolic imagination conducts an action through analogy of the human to the divine, of the natural to the supernatural, of the low to the high, of time to eternity. he looks at Dante as the one who's so firmly established this way but remember the, the claim that I'm gonna make is that Dante learned it from Virgil he learned it from Homer. So by the time it gets to Dante it is very rich with meaning. Um, Dante is taken as the great exemplar of the poetic way because it's Dante who finds in the common thing the action and image of its creator. This is Tate quoting Charles Williams who was a great apologist of Christianity, a great novelist in our time. It was, however high the phrases, the common thing from which Dante always started. What does the Iliad start from? Adultery. (coughs) <coughs> I hope people don't remember this the common thing, you know. Those things happen all the time. Men cheat on their wives and wives more and more today, the career women cheat on husbands. It's it's an ordinary, we, you know, you start from what's real. Um, and the Iliad, well I mean, um, a man takes your job away. He dishonors you. He, he gives himself 20 times the amount he gives you. A CEO today will take 100,000 times more than his employee, you know, and, or sometimes in an office, a boss who, like Agamemnon, a boss who's not very competent will go up against an Achilles, somebody who's much better than he is, and put him down. What's the response of that guy who's more gifted than the boss? Walk away. You know, what I mean, they're so common. These things happen in jobs all the time. People get mistreated, they're not honored, they're not respected. The bosses full of himself. So these are very, very common things. Poet always, always starts with the most ordinary things. It was the common thing from which Donnie always started, as it was certainly the greatest and most common to which he came. His images were the natural, inevitable images. The girl in the street, Beatrice, the people he knew, they're going to fill the Divine Comedy. The language he learned as a child, Eliot's phrase I mean, if, if, I don't know if you heard it when we were going through the Magi. Um, and if you, if you hear it, a hard time we had of it. This isn't scripture, this is a modern poet speaking in our own language. Be- because if a poet's going to speak to his people, he has to use the language of his own time. This is the simple secret of Dante. This is Tate's concluding now, and this is the the point that I want to get to, that I I really want to leave with you today. It's going to be one of the most important things ever. I hope you take away from our work together. This is the simple secret of Dante, but it is the secret which is not necessarily available to the Christian poet today. This, to me, is one of the most important criticisms we have to face as Catholics. Um, because I think Tate is right on in this. The Catholic faith has not changed since Dante's time, but the Catholic sensibility, as we see it in modern Catholic poetry, from Thompson to Lowell, has become angelic, and it is not distinguishable from poetry by Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, and atheists. That's a sad comment on what's happening, and what he's going to go on to say is it's because we live in abstractions, too. Now, hold on to this, because he's not going to say this, but I hope this makes it clear. I hope it's clear to everybody why that's important to us as Catholics. Because we believe in the real presence. When we go to take communion in the morning, we believe that's Christ present, physically. We take Him in us, and being present in, with Him in us, we are present with Him in His kingdom, actually. That's supposed to be a reality for us. How many Catholics really take communion with that sense that that's what's going on? In whatever way they're not, how are they different from a Protestant? Because a Protestant doesn't believe in the real presence; it's just a commemoration. Yeah. So their whole perception of the, of the physical world has got to be different from ours. What he's arguing is that the Protestant world is far more angelic; it lives in its. To the Protestant mind, the the, the major effect of The fall was all things were corrupted. We lost everything. Everything in nature is corrupted by essence. Milton's word, all corrupt, all destroyed, all of it. The Catholic sense of the fall was not that everything was ruined or or depraved or corrupted, but wounded. The essence remained intact. We're still humans. We're struck with concupiscence. And I'm trusting everybody knows how overpowering that I do. I mean, trying to overcome our concupiscence sometimes is like, it's, it's Odysseus fighting 100 suitors. Um, but our belief is different. We're, our belief is wounded. We're not totally, we're not depraved. But the modern world, I mean, look at 90% of the stuff coming out of Hollywood. is about horror stories. Depravity, horror. It's Manichaean. Truthfully, I'm saying that truthfully, it's Manichaean, there's this belief that evil is inherent in us. The Catholic doesn't believe that. The Catholic believes we're wounded. We've got this sore, this wound that can be absolutely overpowering, but we're not ruined in essence. So the modern Protestant tends to live in his head, removed from his senses, because everything he looks at in his senses is depraved. Could, Could a modern Protestant have ever written Hopkins Windhover? There's this bird showing Christ? Absolutely not, because nature's corrupted, fallen. So the question that he's posing is, what's happened to the modern Catholic artist? Which to me, is a really serious. I mean, obvious. To me, it's a really. I mean, you know my love of poetry. When I think about that, it is. There are signs of revival everywhere around us. Joya is a modern contemporary. Tate is a contemporary, Eliot converted, there there are lots of things going on in the modern world, but the modern world itself is in trouble, um, particularly in its Protestant character. The question to consider here is, as American Catholics living in a Protestant country, how much are we affected by this? How much does it shape the way we see and think and feel? Um, The modern sensibility has changed, it's become angelic, and is not distinguishable from poetry by Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Atheists. I take it that more than doctrine, even if the doctrine be true, is necessary for great poetry of action. Catholic poets have lost, along with their heretical friends, the power to start with the common thing, with the ordinary thing right in front of their senses. They have lost the gift for concrete experience, the abstractions of the modern mind has obscured their way into the natural order. We no longer enter into that natural order. Scientific abstractions dominate our minds. We live in our heads. Nature offers to the symbolic poet clearly denotable objects in depth and in the round which yield the analogies to the higher reaches. It's only through the thing in front of us, the bird, the, the um, kingfisher, um, the carnation and supernatural love I mean, take, it's only through that that we will find the divine and it's only by c- contemplating that we'll get it if we keep looking past things because of the ideas in our head we remove ourselves more and more from nature and in that sense we remove ourselves more and more from God The modern poet rejects the higher synthesis or tosses it in a vacuum of abstraction. If he looks at nature he spreads the clear visual image in a complex of metaphor from one catechesis to another through Aristotle's permutations. He cannot sustain the prolonged image. The second and superior kind of figure that Aristotle doubtless had in mind when he spoke of metaphor as the key to the resemblances of things and the mark of genius. it's our capacity to, to use metaphors, to see analogies that helps us link things, to see the depths of things. Without it, we just remain on the surface, in, in the abstractions of our head. Um, <clears throat> that the gift of analogy was not Dante's loan, every medievalist knows. The most striking proof of its diffusion, and this is where this is all going now. The more striking proof of its diffusion and the most useful example for my purposes that I know is the letter of Catherine of Siena to brother Raymond of Capua. A young Sienese, Nicolo Tuldo, had been unjustly convicted of treason and condemned to death. Catherine became his angel of mercy, giving him his daily solace, the meaning of the cross, the healing powers of the blood, and so reconciled him to the faith that he accepted his last end, I believe that's one of the functions of priests going to prisons, when they deal with murderers and you know, guys that most of the world wants to see put away. That if they can be helped back, they will be saved like anybody else, um, in Christ's blood. You know. um, and so reconciled him to the faith that he accepted at his last end. Now I have difficulty believing people who say that they live in the blood of Christ for I take them to mean that they have the faith and hope someday to live in it." (laughs) One of the things I've said to my family in recent years, I asked them, um, when you pray to Christ, (sighs) it's going to get personal. When you pray to Christ, do you imagine Him in front of you? And I think to a person, they've all said no. And my answer to that is, imagine Him. You know, when we we take the Eucharist, for me, I think, I mean, I I (coughs) pray that that's an actual thing taking place, to imagine it, because if you imagine it, it becomes more real to you, not an abstraction removed. That it's important for us to see that that's an actual event. It's as concrete as, you know, touch my hand, touching my wife, Um. something real, you know. um, know, So, I have difficulty believing people who say that they live in the blood of Christ, for I take them to mean that they have the faith and hope someday to live in it. The evidence of the blood is one's power to produce it, the power to show it as a common thing and to make it real, literally, in action. For the report of the blood is very different from its reality. St. Catherine does not report it, she recreates it so that its analogical meaning is confirmed against again in blood that she has seen. This is how she does it. This is from Catherine's work, Catherine Siena's writings. Then the condemned man came like a gentle lamb and seeing me he began to smile and wanted me to make the sign of the cross. When he received the sign I sat down to the bridle my sweetest brother For soon shalt thou be in the enduring life. He prostrated himself with great gentleness, and I stretched out his neck, and bowed me down, and recalled to him the blood of the Lamb. His lips said nothing except Jesus and Catherine. And so saying, I received his head in my hands, closing my eyes in the divine goodness, and saying, I will. When he was at rest, My soul rested in peace and quiet and in so great fragrance of blood that I could not bear to remove the blood which had fallen on me from him. He was beheaded. She had his head in his lap, blood spilling. How many people would, women, people would be so disgusted with that? You know, she holds that head, um, adoring it in Christ's blood. It is deeply shocking, as all proximate incarnations of the Word are shocking, whether in Christ and the saints, or Dostoevsky, James Joyce, Henry James. I believe it was T.S. Eliot who made accessible again to an ignorant generation a common Christian insight when he said that people cannot bear very much reality. I take this to mean that only extraordinary courage and perhaps even genius can face the spiritual truth in its physical body. That's the point for us as humans, in the body. We can't relegate it to our minds. If it isn't lived in our bodies, there's something missing in what we're doing. Flaubert said that the artist, the soldier, and the priest face death every day, so do we all. Yet it is perhaps nearer to them than to other men. It is their particular responsibility. When Saint Catherine rests in so great fragrance of blood, it is no doubt the blood of the offertory which the celebrant offers to God, cum adore, suava, tatis, but with the literal odor of the species of wine, not of blood. Saint Catherine had the courage of genius which permitted her to smell the blood of Christ in the colotuldo's blood clotted on her dress. She smelled the two bloods not alternately, but at one instant in a single act composed of spiritual insight and physical perception. Is that clear? For her she did not separate the near point, the far thing. The blood on her lap, the clotted blood, was not just blood. It was inseparable from the blood that she associates with the Eucharist, with Christ's blood. That's the mark of the great poet who clearly, Tate and see as close to the saint because they're the ones, the really great ones, who bring those two points together. So so when we think about poetry, we really have to stop and think about what we're reading or what we're watching on television and, and the effect that this stuff has on us, whether it's helping us to bring those two points together in accord with our own faith, or it's working to separate them, which is what's going on in so much of the modern world. Now, along the same line, before I go any farther, just so I want to expand my definition of anal- or I mean prophecy, that that the prophetic quality of the literature that we've been bringing is to bring these two points together by analogy. And if you think about it, um, what what's um, my claim is that these early poets are prophetic after Scripture, where the revelations and their fulfillment have been realized, that this prophetic element is carried out um, and becomes a power for changing other cultures. This prophetic spirit. And the reason I'm seeing this right now is because it. it, it It gets to what we were going to be looking at in Rome, that one of the great themes we'll see in a second of the Aeneid is taking the past and transforming it. Imagine Catholicism going to New York, Africa, China. In each one of these places, it would have it would have to adapt itself. It would be somewhat changed according to the culture it entered. So imagine. Um, if we could pick up a church from, say, Mecca, a Catholic church, or China, or Japan, and set it next to a Catholic church in New York, how different the cultures would be, that in some sense the people could go from one to the other and recognize they're in the same faith faith, because it would be the same mass, that there would be differences in cultural presentations. Um, So that one of the things the poet has to do is take what existed in this Aramaic world where Christ existed out. And as he took it out he would be involved in this process of transformation by analogy taking something that took one form and finding its presence in a very different culture. Um, Doing what I'm saying these poets do to to learn to see distances. Um, So you know where where a certain animal that's important to a tribe in Africa would learn to see Christ there the way Hopkins did in the Wind Hover. That, that our, that's the nature of our faith universally across the world. Um, so I hope that expands our notion of prophecy in the way that I've been using it in literature. That, that not, obviously, not all literature will do this. My claim is that really great literature ultimately does because it's, it's the literature most in contact with the word and its presence wherever the poet is, whether it's Africa or here. Okay, let me stop. I, I want to I um, finish by looking at Virgil and, and putting some things out for you to just be aware of as we read, but let me stop. Any questions or
1: about these? Well, I'm, I'm struck by, you know, I teach a class on Merton and, and Merton is such a, a poet and and when you read his poetry, I mean, it's like opening your eyes. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like every time you get exposed to him, um, it's like another opportunity to see that other level that you're talking about. Yeah. And, and that's where. Uh, and if we get away, I mean, what's so sad is that um, I was teaching. We had somebody. We have one of our friends who was going to teach the class because <laughs> I was sick, and they they took the class and. What they had done is summarized this beautiful chapter of Merton's inner experience about contemplation contemplation, one of the last books he wrote, mm-hmm. but they distilled it out. I mean, they distilled it out as con- c- concrete things, but there was no intuition in it. And so it was like when we read it, The soul was gone. Gone, yes. And that was like, can you not see? Yeah. Or feel too? Yeah. Well, I mean, see, what I and to a fault, I do this. I I like to read Merton out loud.
0: Oh, that's not a fault. That's a gift.
1: Well, and I, but it's like, oh, it's so redundant. I said I could keep reading this, and it opens my eyes, and it touches my heart. Yeah. So why not do that? But everybody wants to move on. We want to, gotta get the damn chapter covered. Oh, God. You know, and so I'm sitting yeah. there, and and then it was like, what happened? At the heart of it was. Yes.
0: Done? No. I. You, know, I, you see. Uh, oh, I uh, couldn't. Yeah. I just see that so clearly. Yeah. By the way, it's not a fault. I. I mean, that's 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 a in some sense that's a blessing on you. Truly, all poetry should be read aloud. First of all. But more to the point of what, it, because we're corporeal creatures, when you read it, it gives a body to a thought. It's more incarnational to read it.
1: Exactly.
0: So, That's so, so it's not. I mean, that says a lot about you that, you know, that um, because it's it should be truly. It should, all this stuff. Should, Shakespeare's plays were performed. The lyric poets were readers. Odysseus sits down and tells a story. Aeneas is. They're supposed to be heard and spoken. So. You
1: give it a body when you do that. My first course in Old Testament. Uh, the guy's uh, and his name was uh, Roland Murphy, and he knew all the biblical languages. So we walk in the class. His nickname was Yahweh. He's six, he's six foot five with bright red hair. There's a small burden. Okay, there's a few. He walks in and he says, "I want to teach you. You have to hear this in its original language." Yeah. And you have to hear it as poetry and song. Yes, yes. And he yes. gets up and sings the scriptures yeah, to us. Yeah. I got blown out yeah, of my seat. Yeah, for sure. I for said, sure. What the hell do I do with that? I can't wrap my head around yeah. it. Yeah. I Even it was low. In some sense, you're
0: not supposed to. Yeah. Can't. Right, right.
1: Yeah, and low, I said, right. I, I was right. overwhelmed, yeah. but I haven't fit, I still haven't recovered. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: that that's that's a good recovery. That's a good oh. Okay, let me um let's see. I'm gonna tune this for a minute and then turn it back. We're about done, so just a two highlight timelines to be aware of. Um, um one of the differences to be aware of with the Aeneid is that Virgil has a historical sense. Of the action of the poem but Homer never did because once again Virgil had Homer and Homer had nobody but in for just example in the opening books you're going to get Jupiter's prophecy who's going to give us the whole unfolding of Rome and when you read it you're sort of amazed because you ask yourself how could he have known that well he could there's no way he could not have known it because Virgil lived 29 to 9 or no, 70 he write he writes it takes him 10 years to write by the way he lives from 70 to roughly 20 BC he as all Ro- educated romans would have been he had this you know wonderful education and would have known roman history he clearly was a, a genius i mean so his grasp of history had to be great and fine so historical details are going to find their way into this poem <coughs> the way that's less true here because most of the details that get into Homer's poem are mythic. They belong to a mythic past. So there isn't the historical density in um, Homer that there is in Virgil. This is going to be more historically grounded. Um, so my claim is that the prophecies will be, I don't know what to say about it, they're going to carry more history in them so they're going to seem more real. Um, I believe in them anyway, both but. Um, the plot, the timeline of the Aeneid is this. And this is going to be really crucial. It opens in Medius race. I'll go through that next week, I'll, but you should know that we're in the middle of things, in the midst of things. Just as the Iliad and the Odyssey did. Um, um, the gods will meeting council, they will be discussing certain things. Um, Juno and, and um, Venus will argue with each other. Venus is Aeneas's mother, and that's so important. Remember, she's the goddess of love. Venus's roots go back to love. That's different from anything we saw in the Iliad. That's not a small thing. Juno resents Aeneas because um, she wanted Carthage to be the city that would be founded, and she knows that... Aeneas is going to go on and found Rome. Remember that um, Venus is the equivalent of uh, Hera. And if you remember, Hera was on the, I mean, Juno. Juno is Hera in the Greek world. And remember that Hera was on the Achaean side, the Greek side. She and Athena and the others. She opposes Aeneas, he's on the Trojan side. And she's more bitter here because she she would like to see Carthage raised when she knows that Aeneas is going to go on and found Rome. So she feels slighted as a goddess. It'll be one of the themes. I want to come back to that in a minute. But anyway, they're in council. They meet. Aeneas, when we first get a description of Aeneas, he's been thrown off course. He lands on the north coast of Africa in Libya at Carthage. He sits down in Dido's court and tells his stories. So the first half of the Aeneid Line up with the Odyssey. Now hold on to this. This is so crucial. It's just amazing. I'm just, I, I'm just amazed. The homecoming of the Odyssey is nostos. He's going to get home. When he comes to Africa to tell a story, he's lost his home. This is absolutely, utterly, radically different from Homer at the outset. So the whole theme of nostos is going to be. Turned on its head, he's lost his home. He comes to Dido. He doesn't. He's been given this calling. He keeps trying to found these cities, and finds he makes mistakes all along. He will tell the story of his journeys, and then he will leave Carthage. Mercury will come to him. He and Dido have this affair for a year. Mercury will come to him and say, "What are you doing with this woman? Helping her to build her cities? Get on with your calling." He leaves, and he goes on to Italy. And here he will encounter all of these um, civil um, wars, these people involved in civil wars, because of different racial identities. And one of the things that he will have to face that that we didn't really face is overcoming racial differences between people in order to found this city, this universal city, that, that represents the overcoming of racial differences. And what we see here is, how deep-seated and potentially violent those racial differences are. If things change, if you look at America today, I mean, we are the one country in the world that is based on Rome, that we bring all peoples together, that's our nature, and yet, you know our culture is just beneath the surface we are struggling terribly with racial problems. So the second half of the poem is based on the Iliad, the, the wars. So both halves assimilate the Homeric world, and one of the important things to keep in mind as you read is how he changes it. Watch what he does with it. It's sort of amazing to see what he does. Okay, um, one more thing, and then I want to just read a couple of things, and then we'll stop.
1: When you say he has history, I mean, he has a sense of history, he, he literally knows the history oh, yeah. of his people so well. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, how does he gain that knowledge? I mean, is that just because he's... Oh, uh, he's th- if you morning? read
0: Livy, for example, the historian, I mean, Livy will go... and you've got the... Um, Herodotus and Thucydides, the Greek historians who already had history. The Romans knew the whole Greek world. They knew the philosophers, the historians, You've got oh, the great oh, Roman crazy. historians who wrote going back to that Greek period because they knew, Rome knew, if in order to be as great as they, they seemed to be called to be, they had to assimilate this Greek world. So they, they knew them all. The, the, it was, they were so self-conscious about how much they owed to the Greeks. Um, and and the Greek historians would have produced these histories that that Virgil would have known practically by heart. <laughs> okay, the great themes of the of the Aeneid, the founding of Rome. What is Rome? <coughs> what is Rome? Um, when you go through the first half of the Aeneid after Troy is destroyed. Aeneid is, is going to be um, told that he's got to go on and found this new land, this new city. It's the theme of a vocation. He's called. In some sense, Achilles and Odysseus have divinely appointed tasks. They have to do something other men are, have not been asked to do. But it's implicit, it's, it's, it's buried. It's only in the Aeneid that that becomes explicit. He is called out specifically to found this city. So, what is this Rome? What are we going to learn about this city that's at the center of our faith? And, and I'm going to put it, I mean, project it forward. What will, how will it inform us about our faith? What will we learn from this pagan about Rome? Um, and I've already implied one thing. It's nostos. Odysseus is going home, right, at the beginning of the Odyssey. When Aeneas starts, he's already lost his home. So at the very beginning of the Aeneid, things have radically changed. So whatever we make of Rome, whatever this city is, it begins with the loss of your whole world, your wife, your culture, your friends, your identity as a people, your connection to the land, what, what it makes it possible for you to say, we, we're tied to this body of land, that's all gone. So right away we have some sense of <laughs> something frightening to look at at the center of our faith. Um, the founding of Rome, what is Rome? The translation, the, the problem that, that Aeneas has, of taking, he's, he's asked to take his gods with him, so he carries his gods. When he goes out of the city, he goes out with his father on his back, he's holding the hand of his son, and his wife Carissa, Carissa is with him. When he gets to the landing place where they're going to leave, this is when they're fleeing the city, they're fugitives now. There's another word to connect with Rome. You're fugitives, you're in flight from something. They're after you. He turns around and Carissa's gone. So he loses his wife. The very outset of the book. So, Rome, (coughs) father on his back, his family with him. When he gets to the departure point, the the disembarking point, he turns around. He's so overcome, he runs back into the city. The city's being destroyed. It's overrun by. He goes back into the city, a Trojan, screaming for his wife. He will find. To me, it's one of the most touching scenes in all of it. I don't want to describe it because I've got to leave it to you because you've got to read that moment, but he discovers his wife, she comes to him as a shade, and I'm not going to tell you anymore because it's too touching, but that's the beginning of it. This whole problem of translating the past, he has to take his past and carry it forward. How does he do that? And it's exactly the same problem with the poet. How does Virgil take the Homeric world that did so much to shape his own sensibility, and and translate it into a new language, a new vision, because Rome is called to do something Greece never was. So this theme of translating the past, carrying it forward and changing it as it goes. When I first realized the importance of the theme, it blew me away, it knocked me over because of this reason. Most of us think the past is dead, it's fixed. It's there. What poetry showed me is that that's not so. And in that sense, poetry is like a grace offered us. Because what we see good poets doing is carrying the past with them and changing it as it's going. It's redeeming it. It's an amazing thing. That the, Remember the great theme of the Odyssey is that you stay in the past, Pylos, Sparta, you're dead in the wounds. Odysseus had to move on and he came into this present moment that we can't remain in the wounds of the past. We cannot stay there. It's not where we're meant to be. And the... the task of coming out of them is not easy. It's what the poet does, the great the great poet. That's why Eliot said, with Virgil, European civilization comes of age," Because he took this whole past and transformed it, redeemed it, achieved a kind of maturity that Homer couldn't because Homer didn't have that kind of a figure behind him. The theme of vocation, he's called out to found the city, Every time he thinks he's got a city, he starts a founding and he discovers something wrong. It's exactly like our lives, I think, for most of us. We're called out, we're to do something, we turn a corner thinking we're going to finally see it, we turn the corner and it's gone. Or just when we think we've got something, the rug is pulled out from under us and we have to go on. So just when we think our accomplishments are done and (laughs) (coughs) we've finally done what we were supposed to do, we find it's not so... So the theme of a vocation, that there's always something elusive, there's something more yet to do.
1: But the idea of a vocation is that it has its origin there like a career, We think of a career, but the idea of vocation, we're called to something. So it's always being called by the gods, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so this is something that's been part of our Catholic heritage. Mm-hmm. You know, we, it's there. I mean it is, that word is yeah. pretty powerful.
0: And and the Aeneid makes it explicit. It's not it's not so explicit in the in the Homeric world, but it is in Virgil. It's a clear you'll re, you'll see. The gods are constantly speaking to him, calling him on. So the theme of tradition, carrying it forward, we put it here. Juno's wound is important and the, Virgil's view of woman is something we're going to have to look at because her wound is she's constantly troubled uh, with Aeneas and makes problems for him, you know the way the gods have all the heroes. so um, I want to read these two things, and then we'll stop. Two things about the Iliad. I mean, the Aeneid, I want you to know before we go. In book twenty, I'll give you the line book twenty lines two hundred to two eleven. Book 20 in the Iliad. This is the Iliad, not the Aeneid. So go back and look at the Iliad. This is sort of amazing. This is what Homer writes. This is book 20 in the Iliad, in the middle of the wars, and the battles. Aeneas and um, Achilles are about ready to fight. Aeneas is going to pick up a stone and throw it at Achilles and Apollo comes and rescues him because he knows if he goes through the act he's going to die. And Aeneas is whisked off and spared in the scene. Repeatedly we get descriptions of Aeneas in the Iliad, but not much is made of him. But we know that he's one of the great Trojan heroes. This is what happens on this. It's on page um, page 409 if, if, when you go home today if you want to look at it. But it's book 20, line 200 um, to 211, and then line 300 to 305. Son of Peleus, never hoped by words to frighten me as if I were a baby. This is Aeneas speaking to Achilles now. This is wonderful because we know these heroes. This is from the Iliad, a work we know now. I myself understand well enough how to speak in vituperation and how to make insults because you know how the men are with each other when they're going to combat. Things haven't changed. (laughs) Trash dogs today. You and I know each other's birth. We both know our parents since we have heard the lines of their fame from mortal men. Well, I have never with my eyes seen your parents, for you, they say, are the issue of blameless Peleus, and that your mother was Thetis, the sea's lady. I, in turn, claim I am son of great-hearted Anchises, but that my mother was Aphrodite, Venus, and the, the goddess of love. And think about it, too, because in the Greek world, Aphrodite, is, as the goddess of love, is more associated with erotic love. Venus has a more maternal, softer quality in the Roman world. It's a, Even though you can make that connection, there are these changes that are taking place that we have to be aware of. Anyway, here she's Aphrodite. I'm the son of great hearted, or I mean and my mother was Aphrodite. And that of these parents, one group of the other will have a dear man to mourn for this day. One of us is going to die, and our parents are going to mourn for us. Aeneas is saved, and then we've got this, but come, let us ourselves get him away from death, for fear the son of Cronos may be angered if now Achilles kills this man. So the gods spare the gods spare Aeneas. This is the hero of Virgil's work. He took this figure out of Homer, and this is the crucial line. It is destined that he shall be the survivor, that the generation of Dardanus shall not die. How did Homer know this in 800? Homer's telling the poem again at 800. Virgil's not going to write the Aeneid until 20 BC. But here, Homer is saying, It is destined that he should be the survivor, that the generation of Dardanus, he's of the generation of Dardanus, you'll see that in the shall not die without seed obliterated, since Dardanus was dearest to Cronides and all his sons, Cronos, that had been born to him from mortal women. So what's, what do we learn about Rome from this fact? It is the eternal city, its founder, the line will never die out. So here in the Iliad, the seeds are already planted for Rome. Now, how are we to make Was this an intimation? on homer's part is something you know I don't even want to go I mean it, that to me is so mysterious I'm just amazed at it but this is this is the source for um, 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 our hero in the Homeric world Now, just one one passage more it's short and then we'll be at the end of book 3 remember Aeneas has Just been blown off course. He comes to North Africa, to Carthage. He's welcomed by Dido. He goes into court. And he will tell his story. At the end of his story, at the end of Book 3, this is on page... um, page 90 and 91. And we'll end on this. Page 90... He has just finished going through all of his journeys, just like Odysseus, so, and, but be aware of the differences, because there are differences everywhere. <coughs> and then he comes to the end. Dares directed, we worship the pure powers of the place, then sailed on past Hilurus' rich plowlands and ponds. We coasted high crags of Peck. Notice how much more literary this is than Homer. I mean, just, you can hear it and see it in the words. With rocky tongues of land and far away shone Camarina, never to be disturbed, then the Jelluan playing Jello itself, named for a torrent, then bleeding cragus, breeder of meddlesome horses in the past, displayed her distant massive walls, and helped by winds, I put Salinas of the palms behind us, so close to the shoal water of Lily Bayam with her hidden reefs. This is so much more literary than anything we find in Homer. And in the end the port of Trepanum took me in a landing without joy, for after storms at sea had buffeted me so often, here alas, I lost my father, solace in all affliction and mischance. O best of fathers, in my weariness, though you had been delivered from so many perils in vain, his father had been with him in all the, all the journeys, all the adventures, From so many perils in vain, alas, here you forsook me. Never had Helenus, one of the Trojans he meets on his journeys. Never had Helenus, the seer, who warned of many things to make me quail, foretold this grief to me, nor had the vile Solano, he's one of the furies that will prophesy as well on on his journeys. Here was my final sorrow, here the goal of all my seafaring. When after this I put to sea, gods drove me to your shores. Now think about the implications of this. In the Odyssey um, we begin in medius race, things are in disarray at home, Odysseus is kept on Calypso's island. We go forward. When Odysseus gets home, is his father dead or alive? He's alive. In fact, his father, Laertes, joins Odysseus after he kills the suitors when the father of the suitors starts a revolt, a revolution. Odysseus' father is the one who fights the suitor's father. Odysseus' father is always there. At the outset of this work, the first thing that we're made aware, I mean, it's the, wife, the loss of the wife, and, but it's the loss of the father. And In some ways, the, the loss of the father is almost greater because it's through the paternal line that the traditions are carried forward. So but here, He's lost his city, and at the outset, we don't even know it yet. We won't till the third book. When we get to the third book, we discover Anchises is dead. So whatever Rome is, I mean, think immediately about the difference between this and the Odyssey. The Odyssey, Odysseus is going home. His father's there. So is his mother. Well, his mother's dead. But the nurse is there. His wife is there. First thing Aeneas loses, wife. Then he goes on, and he loses his father. So whatever Rome is, it's already enclosed in this mystery and darkness. There is no father, there will be no wife, so immediately, whatever Rome is, has to be understood in those terms. This is a radical departure from what Homer did with the Aeneid and the Odyssey. So as we look forward, He's going into a kind of darkness and a mystery. He's lost his past. All the most personal important things, except his son who is the promise of the future to go forward. So, immediately we're given a sense of the cost. If, if Rome is the center of our faith, immediately we get a cost of the sense of our faith and how it changes. The temporal things that give us comfort will have no place in this enterprise. Whatever this robe is.
1: Would you say you lost his identity?
0: It's a good way of putting it. I mean, first.
1: Because all of that stuff makes up who
0: you are. Yep. Yep. <coughs> yeah, that there's something radically new and he doesn't know what it
1: is. So, Okay. You wouldn't quite call it the dark night of the soul. He's going in the darkness. Boy, I, it's, for, for, in a
0: pagan world, it seems to be as close as you can get. I yeah. mm-hmm. okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. I meant to get. We didn't. We didn't bring. I, I bought. We got those pamphlets you gave us, the travel things. I want to get back to you. Do you want them back or? Okay. Okay. I, I, I get more every week. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, it's good to see you again. I hope you guys enjoyed it. It's
1: an extraordinary work. Thanks for the Bye. Bye. I just hit
0: this. Stop here, Dunk. I Just hit stop.